going back to learning as an idea feels like the stone nuts because you allow yourself to make mistakes and the best places of learning are when you make those mistakes. But if you punish yourself for making those mistakes, the probability of you learning from them really goes down because you're just going to get saltier and saltier and saltier, right? Like people who use pain to not make the same mistake twice, but if you're already hurting, you're probably not learning as much as you could be. What's up, everyone? Today, I've got one of my favorite fake doctors known as Dylan Wiseman. He's known as Dr. Well, his name is Dylan Wiseman. His name is uh, known as Dr. GTO, but he's not literally a doctor to my knowledge. But he's kind of a poker doctor, and he's the lead uh, instructor for Upswing PLO. He's making millionaires with his community, and he might just make you one, too, if you listen in. On top of that, he's my executive coach for teaching me how to run a team and become an executive person, a proper entrepreneur, like a serious entrepreneur, which is really quite a feat itself. So he's doing lots of big things. What's up, Dylan Wiseman? So Dylan, why don't you tell us tell us about your coaching? Tell us what is it exactly and what's unique about it? First off, thank you for the intro. I'm always stoked to be back on the Jungle Pod. I'd say that... The difference between my coaching and a lot of coaching that you find in the poker ecosystem generally is that poker coaching is very poker first a lot of the time, where it's download a bunch of data, download a bunch of sims, download a bunch of live reads, and less focused on the actual learning process. And that tends to happen in poker generally, where you get poker players building out products without experience in product building or in education. And I'd say that my poker coaching or poker educational products are really built from the first principles of learning. Like, How do we use different learning models, different pieces of empathy for how the people that we're working with think to convey information in a way that will actually get it to stick and synthesize? And so something I really love to focus on both in my poker products and in my one-on-one coaching, whether that be for PLO or for executive performance coaching like you and I do, is Mm -hmm. to... Be very specific to the person that we're working with, even if that specificity, quote unquote, is the general poker population, because you can use population tendencies to teach in the same way that you can for evaluating poker. And so, yeah, I also just am stoked on it. I love teaching. I love the process of seeing students learn and grow. And that's, that's something that I really hope comes off in everyone that I work with. Can you give a couple examples of what what this looks like a couple examples of tendencies that you've noticed that you've adjusted to and i guess just for plo coaching especially because that's more you know what people are interested in it's more my audience wants to learn plo not necessarily executive coaching yeah that's a great question so as you As you build a database of students that you've worked with, you can definitely see generalized tendencies that happen. And a lot of the time, it has nothing to do with their poker, but more so their approach to the game or their overall systems. For example, there is the classic, I'm very good at poker. I can beat 2-5 online, but whenever I try to move up, I get crushed and I always end up busting my bankroll. 
But this trans, as a coach, when I see that, I see someone who's very intelligent. I see someone who is very motivated, but maybe they don't have the appropriate emotional regulation or professional infrastructure to actually make it work in poker. And as you continue to work with students that have these same tendencies, it becomes easier to prescribe them, quote unquote, a plan to getting them to the right place. Because my job as a coach is not just to fix their PLO fundamentals, it's to help build their human fundamentals simultaneously. So for that specific student, we wouldn't first start with PLO coaching. We'd start with some mental game stuff. We would break down what their definition of success is in poker to make sure that we can help them hit it sustainably, right? Where they're not just trying to move up and going bust on repeat. So that would be one example of a student that I work with. Another example would be someone who has been playing live for a very long time. Let's say that they play 5-10 or 10-20 live, but they really struggle when they play the WSOP tournaments. And that's because they have this innate understanding of maybe game flow or of reading their opponents, but they don't have a very strong background in theory. And so for those type of players, we wouldn't just tell them to get rid of all of their live reads and things like that. We would start by rebuilding a solid fundamental, like, or a solid set of fundamentals from the ground up in game theory, and then incorporating that into the game that they're, that they have already built out. So I'm not going to delete all the things that they're good at that allowed them to win at 5, 10, and 10, 20 for a decade, but I'm going to enhance that by making their fundamentals more solid. So then when they go play like the 10K PLO or the 25K PLO at the WSOP, they're not going to be blundering against players who both have solid fundamentals and are very good within the live environment. Um, I think that makes sense. And definitely a big part of poker that I've witnessed is that there's a lot of emotional barriers that maybe are more of an issue than than the theoretical and technical barriers. I feel like the theory and the poker content for trying to learn poker is beaten to death. I mean, you can literally buy like a lot of sims to learn how to play, but yet people make all kinds of mistakes. I think it's more, more important to focus on the actual problems at hand, which don't always look technical and theoretical. What you're saying makes quite a bit of sense. I'm curious specifically how you get around someone who just like, specifically how you help someone who just like is, has whatever problems they have with moving up in stakes or has problems with bluffing or something like that. Step one is always diagnoses, right? Because a lot of the times when someone comes to you as a student, they will be like, yeah, this is what I really what I want to work on. I really want to work on my flop C-bet sizings and I want to work on X, Y, Z. But in reality, they'll be asking questions in a certain way where you, you can really understand what the root issue is. So for example, under aggression generally is an issue that a lot of people have. And yeah, if someone has under aggressive tendencies, a lot of the times they play poker from a fear-based mentality, right? They're scared to get called. And that's the same thing that ends up happening with people moving up in stakes. They're scared of losing when they start playing bigger. And so instead of just trying to fix their bluffing frequencies or tell them to take deep breaths when they're moving up in stakes or whatever, I try to really understand what the root cause of their leaks are and then fix those first. Because if you can help someone transition out of a fear-based approach to poker to a logical and aggressive approach to poker you're going to have a much higher probability of success in the long term. Because we all both know that when someone's scared in a game, we're going to eat their face, right? And especially if you're under bluffing or moving up in stakes, those are two perfect examples of people who are usually scared within a poker environment. And that usually means that they're anxious in a poker environment. So then we have to talk about why they have these anxious tendencies. 
at the poker table. And once we figured that out, it becomes so much easier to then replace the processing that they're already using to make decisions with logical processing that will allow them to be successful in the game type that they've chosen. Well, I'm asking, I mean, yeah, and it's, it's funny you say, like, is aggression logical? I mean, kind of. A lot of times, definitely, a lot of plays that kind of use the logic to override the emotions somehow. Well, I'm asking, like, how do you override once you've diagnosed? Ooh, that, that's okay. That, that's, that's, that's okay. Thank you for the clarification. I think that once we figure out what's wrong and the reason why it is, like, reason why there's an inefficiency, we use learning reinforcement systems to replace those logic patterns. So for example, we'll use training tools to make sure that people train in the appropriate ranges. Um, if they are having issues with finding aggression because they get nervous, we will give them breathwork coaching to make sure that their body can become more stable in game so they can actually execute on a logical process that they know, right? Our job is to evaluate what's wrong and then use different tools that we've built out structurally to input the knowledge or input the skills necessary to overcome those leaks or those inefficiencies. Okay. But it, it really takes a robust set of tools, which is something that I think you and I have talked a lot about, like building the right tools to actually learn from. Yeah. One thing I thought made a lot of sense was to, I mean, it would only go so far, but to use like some drills and that kind of thing. I personally experimented a bit with that. Um, while I'm working on this, this whole idea of like using tools and like getting data to see what works and what doesn't with what I'm doing, which we'll get to in a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think that would do a decent amount of job. I think really at some point you just do have to go out there and, and pull the trigger when you're in the live environment though. It's like, it's not the same thing working on like a GTO drill wizard machine than it is like pull crazy bluff in. Yeah you know, a tournament or whatever. For sure. Our job also, though, is not just to give them the GTO answer. It's to give them a baseline and then teach them how to deviate from it as well, right? Like you're, I know that you are a man that does not look at the solver every time to click the answer, right? There's a lot of human component and other pieces of data we need to integrate into our model for actually executing in a real poker game. And so I think that it's both the combination of learning the what baseline looks like, but then also very consistently getting out into the wild and practicing and putting in volume and then coming back and either working with me or working with a training group, right? Having that feedback loop of learning and then processing and then playing and then learning and then processing and playing and doing that on repeat and having a group of people to do that with or a coach to do that with is the stone nuts. Because whenever you kind of go awry and you're on your own, you don't know if what you're doing is right or not. But having that truth set, whether it be a person or a group of people, to, to hold you accountable in this learning process, to me, is invaluable. And is one of the ways that I've, I think, become a very good poker player on top of helping my students become better poker players and people. Are you leading to the whole community aspect around coaching and learning? I um, am, in I fact. Something... Okay, okay. Because, well, I mean, that's one thing I want to talk about as well, is the community that I'm building. But why don't you talk about yours and explain, well, you kind of went into it a little bit, but explain what was it that got you into creating this and the benefits that you've seen from it. 
I think that for a game like poker specifically, if you do it on your own, it's a very lonely pursuit. And it's a pursuit that doesn't have a lot of positive feedback loops. Like, yes, you win a tournament or whatever, and you get the money. But if you're doing it on your own, it can become really hard to deal with the swings. I think that in general, when humans are trying to learn, we do better in a community because there is the support of data. There's support of emotional empathy. There's the support of people who are striving to do the same thing as you going along the journey. And if you notice, and this is something I know you and I have talked a lot about, when you show up to all of the, the big stuff, like the PGTs and the Tritons, everyone's got a crew. It's very rare that there's just someone who's solo out there not working with a team of people. And that doesn't mean that they're cheating. It means that they're working together. It means that they are studying together, that they're talking hands together, that they are like maybe they are like have one person who's financially investing in other people because financing is really important in poker as well, right? Like not going broke is a big thing. And it's easier to not go broke with a group versus individually. Um, and so I think that there's a lot that could be said from looking at what has worked throughout poker historically, as well as just humans throughout history tend to learn and execute better in a group environment. And so for poker, when there's so much variance and emotional labor that we have to that we have to deal with, having that community aspect who can keep you in check and then help you grow, it feels invaluable to me. Yeah, actually how communities, et cetera, and how they've developed over time has become a bit of an interest of mine. I won't go too far into it because I think it'll just alienate too much of my audience. But it turns out that actually what is optimal for learning is a, a bunch of people who, well, not well, not exactly people, but it happens to be people in this case, a bunch of independent parties that independently come up with conclusions on their own and then kind of like bring them together, which is actually what people are designed in many ways to do. And in my experience, one of the fastest ways to learn is to get the various different viewpoints from other people because i mean this is actually one of the first things i learned myself was that i just couldn't think of everything myself and that with everyone helping each other or getting other just as i said viewpoints from other people it was just much easier to like fix issues that wouldn't would often be blind spots in the first place and as you said, yeah, the, the whole idea of emotional support and all that would just be non-existent virtually if there's no, you know, no friends in the game or anything like that, which I think is an important aspect to dealing with, you know, the swings and all the frustrations of poker, not to mention, you know, preventing people from getting cheated and which which is something I will personally try to approach and try to help fix. I think that within the idea of community, I mean, it already happens to a fair degree, but it's just not like actively focused on that much, is the potential to reduce things such as cheating and like change the culture in a positive way. What are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. I think that network effects for large communities are very real within humans generally. Specifically in poker, there tends to be a very deep-rooted salt in a lot of the population because 
it's such a hard career in a lot of ways to be a professional poker player or to be in poker in the poker community over a long period of time. People get cheated. People go on long downswings. People live a lifestyle that isn't healthy for them. And so if we can continue to build communities that are not only focused on becoming baller poker players, but also focused on healthy human mechanics, such as diet, nutrition, overall health, meditation, breath work, all those things. But then also like empathy, understanding, treating people well. If those can be the facets of our larger poker communities, I do think that we can help with the general poker discourse where there's just so much salt and so much flaming. And because we are playing a game that is combative by nature, I think that that is the general ethos in some ways to playing poker. It's like, yes, it's a competition, but people take it personally. Whereas if you see someone like Lucky Chewy, they're playing it as a competition for the beauty of the game, for the beauty of the sport. And if you can do that while also being a kind and empathetic person and still trying to rip other people's heads off, that to me is the like the pinnacle of poker. And what I think even recreationals would want to enter instead of this environment where there's a bunch of like miserable regulars who are just there every single day being salty like that. If I was showing up to a hobby, that's not the people I'd want to interact with. I want to interact with Chewy if I show up to like the studio, right? Like that's the type of energy I want to be facing with in this game. And because it's such a beautiful game, there's so much opportunity for that mentality. But I think the isolationism and just the truth of what it is to be a professional poker player over the long time, it makes it hard for the general population to have that approach. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Why would anyone want to like be around people who are feel like they're entitled to your money and you're like gambling? <laughs> yeah. You want to create more of like a, a slots machine. Well, I, I wouldn't go this far, but like at least make it fun in like whether someone wins or loses and that kind of thing. Uh, you definitely want to create the environment so that the recreationals feel like, oh, they're welcome and that they you know, that if they win, it's cool. If they lose, it's cool. And you don't care too, too much. Actually, speaking of which, having being out here in Macau, I'm actually really impressed with the regulars with how they handle the VIPs and all that. And I mean, even in the public games, there's no one really being miserable or anything like that. Or too miserable. What's the difference? Yeah, what's the um, difference between Macau and the... Like, could you... I've never played in Macau. Could you maybe describe the difference in the ecosystem between Macau and the U.S.? Well, for one thing, there's this one thing that the Wynn Casino does that I really think other casinos should try to do, if it's possible anyway, but they have VIP seats for people who aren't professionals who want to come and gamble. They're literally called VIP seats, and the pros have to kind of battle it out to play with them. And so it forces the pros to you know, play long hours against each other, and the VIPs just turn up whenever. And then otherwise people don't get the seats. So there's that. And it could be, to be honest, just that there's more money that goes around. I th for whatever reason, there's an air of cooperativeness that happens between the players. Like no one really, it's not a whole lot of, of like screwing each other over or like getting really bitter and doing too many like no one really does anything unethical or like gets really vindictive or anything like that. A big factor could be just the that the environment is a little bit more forgiving than some other places. Whereas I feel like sometimes in some games, such as 
in it couldn't be the case in WSP.com or excuse me in W in the WSP tournaments. It's that's quite an abundant system. I mean, many mm-hmm. there can be many winners in the the World Series. Yeah, it's not like super tough. But maybe like some some mixed games environments may be really hard for people to be economitous just because it's very hard to win a mixed, I'd say. Dude, or, that's so real. I, I, I've been playing a lot of mixed recently. Or not a lot, but more ricks. I don't get to play big PLO cash games anymore. So I have to go play mixed. And there are some mixed environments that feel good, but a lot of them, just, a lot of the mixed players kind of feel salty. And, and it's oh, yeah. hard. And, it, and it's really hard because they're not bad dudes, but I, I do think you're right that the win rates maybe aren't that high and there's not as much money going around. And so unless, you know, like the games like the resorts game or the games at Bobby's room and things where it, it does feel a little more friendly in a chill environment. Outside of that, mm-hmm. it's it. There's a lot of salt, but I don't know. Yeah, I could small sample. Who knows? It's hard when the win rates are small. Yeah. Yeah. I think another, another reason for the mixed games, uh, players being really salty is just because it's really easy to delude yourself into thinking that you have a big edge when actually you don't and mixed games specifically, like everyone thinks everyone's bad. It's like the stupidest thing. I watch it. I'm just like, this is so predictable. Everyone thinks everyone's bad. Of course they do. And it's just, and their reasoning is just so like, so incomplete. It's more my specialties. I did want to say that, an important factor in becoming a successful poker player is really to know where your edge comes from and where where you might be losing money. You need to know like the complete picture of what's going on and not just like looking at a few aspects of someone's game and drawing a crazy conclusion. I wanted to ask you, how viable is it for someone to become a poker professional? And I also wanted to ask do you think it's really like all things considered not a great choice of a career because I would think that it gives you loads of freedom, which otherwise you don't necessarily have. So those are my two questions for you. Yeah, I hear that. I think that in today's poker ecosystem, starting from zero is much less viable. So when I grew up, I started playing poker very young and I would play on full tilt and the, they had like the hourly free rolls was a couple hundred bucks. You win, you get five bucks. You can run up a roll really easily. The rake wasn't as high back then as well. And it was very, it was possible to start from nothing and people weren't as good. The general poker ecosystem, you could really get away with brain solving because no one had any solvers, right? So win rates were higher, rake was lower. There was more free money floating around. And so the ability to grow from the ground up it happens to a lot of the professionals that you see playing Tritons nowadays. I do not think that that same ecosystem exists in poker currently. I think poker is much more competitive. I think there's a lot more science in it. I think there's a lot more people that are trying to play this game professionally. And so I, for the students that come to me that are trying to play poker as their main gig, and they're like, yeah, I have $5,000 to my name. I want to go play one, two at the local casino and grind it up. It's really hard for me in good faith to tell them that that's a good idea because you're you're using most of your bankroll to live with simultaneously. That's going to add a lot of stress, generally speaking. And so the, the probability of success is there, but it's low. Whereas if someone were to come to me, it's like, hey, 
I've been playing poker for a decade. I have another job that I do 20 hours a week that provides me a stable income. And I really want to be able to beat like 5, 10, 10, 20, quarter, 50 live. Can you help me? In that context, it's much easier because that person has stable finances where they're not worrying about making money to pay their rent. And it is, it is a lot easier to go slowly. And to teach good fundamentals. Because a lot of the times what happens when you're playing for your rent money, being patient's hard, right? Being, being, being satisfied with a lower hourly rate is hard. And given how competitive the poker ecosystem is right now, moving quickly and trying to go up the stakes, you have to be really special. Like it still exists. There's some people out there, friends of mine that are playing big that have done this, but it, it just doesn't happen at as high of a frequency. And so can you play poker professionally now? Is there is the dream still alive? I totally think it is. Do you have to be realistic with what success means? Yes, that is also true. If your definition of success is playing Tritons and all the biggest games in the world, and you're starting today, that's a tough grind. It's tougher than it's ever been. But if your definition of success is leaving a shitty sales job in six months, already having that salary for that time period, learning poker fundamentally in that time and then transitioning out. So you're doing something where you maybe consult on the side and then also play poker. That to me is well and thriving. And that's actually never been more well and thriving because live poker is so booming. The online poker environment kind of dead, to be frank, with, with what is going on. But live tournaments have never been bigger. Live cash has never been bigger. And so the money is there. You just have to be intelligent and realistic in finding it while also being real with yourself on what does it mean to be successful and then mapping that accordingly. Um, so there's a couple of things I want to go into it. For one thing, this whole the dream being really tough if you have no money, I feel like this needs to change. We need to fix this, first of all, Mr. GTO. Um, <laughs> we need to get Falcons in on it. We need to find a solution because this just doesn't seem to, this seems too ridiculous to me. That's actually one question of mine. Like, what is the bottleneck where things become easier for a professional poker player? What stakes? Would it be one, two, two, four? Usually, if someone can beat two, five live consistently, they can make between 35 to $100 an hour, depending if you're playing Hold'em or PLO. And that's a career. I mean, you can, you can make more than 100 an hour depending on how soft the game is. But if you're playing like 2-5 with a $500 unit and you can make 100 k a year, you're crushing it. At least from in the sample set of my students and people that I've seen in the past. And so, and then 1-2 tends to have bigger rake. You can usually make it work at 1-2 depending on the game you're playing. But once you hold them compared to 1-2 PLO, very different as well. Um, but remember, that's with a full bankroll where you can deal with variance. A lot of people that are grinding 1-2 and 2-5, they lose 20 k They're out of the game. Cause, cause that's, that's their life rule. And so how are you going to be like, you have to be able to sustain that stake, not just play it. And those are like, just cause right. you can beat it doesn't mean you can sustain at it. Right. So you need like, I don't know, like, I mean, if you lose 20 K at one, two, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But so remember, Dan, the, the general population are built. We're talking about people building from the ground up. And yeah, it's really hard to lose 20 K at one, two, if you're try harding, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It, it can still happen. Variance is a, a real thing. Not saying that it will. So you can make $100 an hour playing 2-5? No, that's... I mean, if you made $100 an hour at 2-5, that means it's playing like 2-5-10. Yeah. Like you're playing 1K to 2... You're playing like 1K to 2K units and you're putting in a lot of volume and you're like the best player in the game kind of a thing. 
Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. I mean, that doesn't sound yeah. that feasible. But I guess, I mean, I guess I could see in some environments this being a possibility. And by the way, this is one of the goals of my community, which, I mean, it makes sense for you to focus on this too. I, I think if you're not looking at the breadth of the games and looking at the overall environment and finding where the spots are, where there is money, because there's a lot of spots where it's like kind of a trap. And it's really important to find the spots where you don't want to like waste your time grinding and there's just not much money to be made. And I think that's even more important actually of where your effort should be put if you're trying to become a successful poker player rather than like learning pure skills. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I think that, I think that it's a little bit of a, a little bit of B. I think you need the soft skills and I need, I think you need theory. You have to know where the, you have to know where the money is, like know where the gold is and, and also have the pick to, to get it out or whatever. On that, sure. I would love though to learn more about this Discord community that you're talking about. Like we've kind of teased it a little bit, but maybe this is a good time to kind of give the people an understanding of like, why are you building this Discord community and who is it for? Like, why did you choose to do this as this big project that you have tasked yourself and then a whole team to kind of take on? Well, it was a mix of a lot of things. But one thing, like I saw that you were doing it. So there's that. And I saw that it made a lot of sense for me to advance my poker career. To be honest, I went into the interest came a lot from an area that was different from poker and a different side of myself that was more like philosophical, more like purpose oriented, where I had this idea, okay, I want to help the working class. I want to like get into children's education. I want to change the culture of the world in a positive kind of way. And building a community actually is the poker community is actually the alignment of all those different things, right? Like what do those things have to do with poker? Well, you know, poker is actually good for helping the middle class in many different ways. And actually it's perfect for children's education in a way. It's in fact like a, an easier variation to getting towards children's education because literally, well, let me back up for a second. It turns out that in order to make the most, the biggest possible impact, people thought like it was around or that it was done through something like education in terms of like school or whatever, or they vary between that and health and also between energy but at some point they came to this idea of it being about something like sport which is you know like basketball soccer all these things which have been around the been around society for you know eons or for super long periods of time and they teach people how to persevere and how to work as a group and how to become a leader whatever it is and so poker is like a variation of that that does have to do with a lot of real world stuff and teaches you to critically think definitely teaches you to persevere and happen to be good at poker so it fits that bill totally and actually i do think if there's a number of professional poker players that have their shit together and are positive for the environment this actually does help the economic the economy at large in a really small way because the more economic disparity in countries and environments is bad for it's bad for everyone in the long run and poker is a way where many people can become financially independent and become 
like essentially like a middle or upper middle class, which is perfect. This is what you need. Uh, funnily enough, I think, and my hope is that there's a lot of environments where this can happen, at least to a fair degree, and that people can make like, you know, reasonable amounts of income. Huh? Can I ask a follow up question then? Yes. So, with all that in mind, I'd love to get a better understanding of who you really want to be in this community. Because from our perspective, we've designed it so that there is a track for people just getting into poker and also for people who are already crushing, right? Like we're going to have product offerings for someone who's just who's brand new and is already very solver fluent, for example. So I would love to know for you, who do you want joining this community? Like what what is your intention and goal there? So there are two target audiences that I'm going after. And one are crushers. The big group is basically the group of people that are looking for an alternative other than going to college and um, and having like some job that they hate kind of thing. And it can also be people that do a job that are not particularly happy with what they're doing and want to do something else. And I see poker as a way to come free for these groups of people and to be autonomous rather than tie down to something isn't necessarily good. And there's like quite a lot of these people. My hope is that it can apply to people with very limited assets, as was myself when I started poker. I didn't have much money or whatever, and I did grind it up from zero, in addition to people that neither finances together. So that's why I asked my question about to you about that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that the dream is alive in the sense of like, okay, you can win like a free roll or whatever it is, and you can grind like ten dollars and goes, and like somehow, you know, make like, you know, go take that and make like a hundred thousand a year. Like that's really what the dream would be, I think. So a big part of what who I'm aiming for is is these people. Um, I'm aiming for the crushers to a fair degree for a couple of reasons, but not just the crushers in terms of in terms of the people already crushing but also the people who have the potential to crush that want to do something good with it. The idea would be to have, well, part of the idea would be to have the people who are really naturally good help the people who are not, because who else is going to do it if not these people? In addition, what I'm looking for is ideally people who have the ambition to, you know, once they've like won a lot of money from poker to go on and like do something positive with it. Um, and do something, maybe become an entrepreneur or whatever, and continue this idea of like kind of betting on themselves and in a way that is ideally positive for society. Poker by itself is kind of neutral, but there are some positive aspects of it. But if we like take many of the principles of poker and you and you go in a direction like Liv Bowery or Igor Kurganov gone or or like maybe yourself or Whoever, a lucky Chewy, like now that's really a positive benefit to the world because those efforts aren't tied down to anything and they can take whatever form they will, which I think is really what the world needs. So I'm looking for these people who kind of believe in these very lofty ideals as well. I love that. And one thing that I really appreciate about the way that this Discord was designed. So for context, a lot of this is Dan's brainchild. And then he hired me and a couple of other very smart humans to 
help with the operational infrastructure and what you're actually going to be receiving from a product perspective. And a lot of what we're doing when it comes to having weekly seminars, having different learning tracks, um, it is designed to have community cohesion, where if you're just coming into the game of poker, it's not going to feel as if you're out of your depth. There's going to be other people working with you through the same struggles. If you're showing up and you want to learn how to transition from beating NL 1K online to beating like NL like or beating 50 100 live for example which is a very specific skill set that's going to be available to you also it's it's important i think to have this idea of people wanting to help each other and i think that in the future uh, Dan and i are going to continue to iterate mostly Dan on how we can have this large expansive community reinvest into itself. Um because that to me feels very important for communities generally where they are self-sustaining. Like the idea is that new people come in and the people within the community are not preying on those individuals, but they're literally trying to help them grow. And then that makes the entire system foster in and of itself. Or not foster, uh, flourish in and of itself. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of my goals for this is for it to become a greater than zero sum situation, the community itself, and also for poker itself somehow to, so that it's very viable that many different people can win and you know, have a be financially independent in particular. That's really the long-term goal. It's going to be tough to make, you know, majority poker players, majority is too much maybe, but like a pretty good financially independent, but that's really what I'm aiming for. And yes, definitely the routes to win at low stakes are going to be a pretty big focus of mine. I think that's really important as well as like the high six too. I mean, that's the high six are a little bit more natural to me. Uh, we need, ideally I want to create a route from someone to go from point A to, to a, at least to like, like making like a hundred K a year. I think that's more than enough for most people. And that's more than par for what people make in the US. And like if someone was to make that in a developing country, that would be fantastic. If they made it in like yeah. India or many other countries that are like second world or whatever. Um, the goal would be basically to make that route somewhat easy. And we already have many community aspects. Um, well, many of the community features already built into it. Yeah, I agree. That'll uh, be fun. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Dylan and to the other people that I've hired. It's been a bit of a process to learn how to do this. One thing I want to ask you is, and I want to say again, thanks to you. I really appreciate your help and for everyone's help in doing this. I hired some people that really, really good at some things that I am not so good at. <laughs> That's the, that's the, that's the hack though, right? I, I literally have an entire team of people that handles me. Like I have, I have, I have a breathwork meditation coach. I have a sports psychologist. I have a therapist. I have a physical therapist. I have a body workers, like literal team of humans. And to me, a lot of the humans that really find success in life, they surround themselves by people that can build them up. And build and make that a consistent system, right? And so the fact that you reached out to people to to help you is a beautiful thing because that's how you learn and grow. Well, thank you. I was about to ask, and by the way, that's kind of how community works. In fact, that's basically what it is. It is. 
I wanted to ask, how did you manage to figure this out yourself when you were making your community? How did you figure out? How, yeah, actually, that's a good question. How did you figure out how to be an executive? Yeah, it's it's a. I think I'm very fortunate that at the end of college, I kind of had the choice between going into poker because I studied. I didn't. Black Friday happened when I was in college, my freshman year, and so when the majority of people left the country, I didn't. I just stayed in college and got a degree in financial engineering. And post-college, I was kind of at a crossroads between going back to poker, going back to academia, or becoming a digital nomad or whatever, which was kind of like the vibe, just be a dirty hippie walking around the world for a little bit. And was very fortunate to bank a career in in a field that was in AI pretty much. Like I was working for a company that did machine learning for digital advertising. And I was one of the internal people in that, like one of the one of the people that ended up really growing into a lead analytics role and eventually a product role. And so there's a lot of really powerful fundamentals that come from the business world that are very standard. A lot of, a lot of the, these ideas of consistency and of team building and of internal communication, they have been really well studied over the past, you know, hundred years. And so to have a non-formal education from a lot of really beautiful mentors that I've had throughout my career it it helped me so much when coming back to poker about six years ago, because I was bringing all of these fundamentals that are just taken as truths back to an environment like poker, where it's just not as developed in, in, in a lot of these ways, from a marketing perspective, from a business organizational perspective, like these fundamentals just didn't, don't really exist. And so when you show up with the cheat codes, it makes it a lot easier to grow very quickly. And I was also very fortunate to have had some very good mentors and friends in the poker world, like Joe Ingram, Ryan Fee, like these dudes that really helped me progress my career. And because I was surrounded by so many sharp individuals while also having that background in tech, as well as my background in just teaching and education, because I've been teaching since I was 12, it, it kind of all came together into having a skill set that not only could execute on projects like this, but could educate people on how to execute on projects like this, because it is still very systematic, how to build a team, how to communicate with that team, how to have a product that everyone is kind of moving towards, um, how to manage all of that is not trivial, right? And so I think that there's a combination of really run good for my career and my mentors, as well as just a lot of volume put in that has helped me get to where I am right now. Yeah, it makes quite a bit of sense. I'm getting used to it myself. It's it's quite a bit different from how poker is normally considered. And most poker players don't really have to learn this. One of the nice things about being a poker player is, while it does have much crossover to being an entrepreneur, you don't need to learn all the ways of running like a group of people, which is, yeah, it's quite a learning curve. You just need to handle your own emotions which is the beginning of handling a bunch of people, actually. You figure out how to handle yourself. Can and, I speak to that, actually? That, yeah, like, go ahead. I think the biggest leak I see for poker players transitioning into the entrepreneurial space is being able to manage a team. Because it, it's exactly like what you just said, right? The There's this idea that all you have to do is manage yourself and show up and execute every single day. But the second that you have to interact with another person's emotions or a team of people's emotions and have a communication construct that allows you to work with like with a wide variety of people, you're now getting to the very far outliers in the poker community. Even the really smart people in poker don't have this skill set a lot of the time. And so it, it really becomes apparent 
when someone has worked on those fundamentals or wants to work on those fundamentals because it increases the probability of success outside of poker so quickly when you can really iron down on how you communicate, how you relate to yourself and how you relate to other people while integrating that into a business context. It's just, I don't see something that's more important than that, really. Sure. Yeah. It's like, it's one of the biggest ways why poker is different from being an entrepreneur, I would imagine. Although it's sort of similar in that, like if you're playing poker, you have to adjust to your opponent. I would think that when you're an entrepreneur and you're managing a team, you adjust to your opponent by figuring out how to talk to whoever it is that you're talking to. That's true. And then there's also GTO, right? There's GTO communication constructs. I noticed that, yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's the, it's that common. It's literally what we try to do as good poker players. You have solid fundamentals and then you be exploitative where you need to be. But if you're all, if you're all explo, you're probably going to be leaking, right? Like that's, that's just how it is. Right. Right. Exploitative communication. I mean, I've flirted with some of these ideas like this. It doesn't really translate exactly so well from poker because I think to be, I mean, I, I want to know what your thoughts are on this, but it like, Errors too much on the side of like being unethical, I would say, or at least like going into like very risky territory. Whereas in poker, like the whole idea of deception is built into the game. Yeah. And it's inherently not unethical. I completely agree with that. When I say exploitative communication patterns, it means adjusting to the person that you're working with, right? And a lot of the times, if you have non aligned incentives, that can come off as like abusive or not chill in many, many different ways from communication, mm-hmm. um, which is why when you can build a vocabulary and a way of speaking to people that has neutral vocabulary and is very easy to respond to and be responded to, like if that's the way that you're communicating, it mm-hmm. it just allows for so much freer transition of information or translation of information. And it's not a trivial thing. I think uh, Dr. Liz Powell is someone that I look up to a lot for this. They are my partner and I's uh, relationship coach, and they've mm-hmm. written books on non-monogamy and polyamory. And the the ways in which they communicate just feel so GTO to me because mm-hmm. the the verbiage is so specific and you cannot misinterpret it at a, at a high frequency. And that allows for you to be more fluid in conversation while also allowing for the other person to feel more comfortable as well, where they don't feel like they're being exploited, right? If you're at a poker table and someone's trying to exploit you, you can feel it in your body. It's very obvious, right? That I think the same thing can be true for communication. And so just being able to speak to people freely and comfortably and have them feel comfortable as well, that to me is invaluable. And I, and I have a lot of respect for people that can do it seamlessly. It's something that I still really work on myself. Right. I want to bring up a couple of examples with that. First, I want to say, I want to say with the feeling of being exploited, I think eventually you'll figure it out. I think you need a bit of time personally. I don't think something, I think, like I, I'm just imagining myself in many situations. I thought that people were trying to run me over and in actuality, they're doing the opposite, which is they mm. wanted me to feel that or like mm. praying towards that feeling. So yeah. it's like not that simple to figure out if someone's exploiting you, but you figure out over time pretty with consistency, 
that's my personal experience with that. And I did want to talk about a couple examples in exploitative communication. I think guys like Steve Jobs and other guys who are really forceful with how they communicate are using a version of exploitative communication, which, well, why don't you talk about that? What are your opinions on that? I think it can be very effective. I also think it can create toxic work cultures. People that yeah, talk what... about work, yeah, people that talk about working for jobs didn't enjoy it at a high frequency, right? It can feel abusive. A lot of people that hate their jobs hate it because they don't like the way that their boss treats them. They don't like it because of the way that the company treats them, because of the way that they're spoken to. The people that enjoy their work feel respected by the people that they work with in terms of how they're communicated to. And that's something that I work a lot with my non-poker clients as well, because you you kind of see similar leaks for very quickly successful startup founders, people that are like, I work with people that are series A, series B that had really good ideas and are really good at building products. But now as you're trying to scale a company, right? You need to scale past that initial product. You need to scale into having internal operation systems. And that includes internal communication systems. And so you get these really smart individuals who don't have empathy for the fact that when they tell something, when they tell someone that what they did was wrong, it's seen as speaking down to them, right? Whereas you can say, hey, I appreciate your work. These are some things I think we need to fix, right? Like those two ways of communicating feel so different in someone's body. And I think that a lot of very smart humans don't have that skill set. So it comes off as toxic, right? Like the Steve Jobs is of the world that it, it got shit done but it hurt people on the way. And like, is that a good thing? I don't know. But in my work and in the businesses that I run, I really try to have that proponent of empathetic communication. Cause I still think you could be a crusher. I think, I still think you could have that like get after it mentality, but not in such a way where you're speaking down to the people around you. I, I, I want to say as someone who's like had to break down communication, what's going through my mind as to why it's toxic. I, I mean, I personally think it's definitely not ideal. And I try to not be like Steve Jobs in these respects. But he was mm-hmm. very obsessed. You have to give him that. It's very hard to like oh, word. be obsessed. He got shit done. Also, well, it's very hard to be obsessed and also like not push things too hard. But in my mind, what was going on is essentially is when you say something like you did something wrong. You kind of put a point at all the, you don't really point at the whole picture of what's going on. You point at just like all the negative aspects of what's going on. And so you miss all the positives that are already there. And there's always, always, almost always like a bunch of positives in doing something. And I've totally made this mistake plenty. I mean, it goes, it applies to poker as well. Totally in that if you're like really obsessed with winning, you can always focus on all the mistakes that you're making, which is kind of good, but it'll kind of make you miserable at the same time. Yes, uh, and you'll like never feel like you play well because you'll always find mistakes that you make. This is actually something that shows up with a lot of the high rollers, where myself included. If I lose a bunch of money, I'll be like, I'll still I'll feel it sometimes, but I've gotten pretty used to it. The thing that hurts my body the most is when I blunder something in a situation where I felt as if I should have known it. So if I'm blundering something in a hold'em tournament or whatever where I'm not the best, don't feel that bad. If I blunder something in a PLO tournament where I know that I'm very, very good, my body will sometimes freak out about it. And that feedback loop is not healthy, right? We have to be okay as humans with making mistakes because we are not perfect, even if we're subject matter experts. And that's, I think, a learning journey that a lot of very smart individuals struggle with because in their childhood, there was the feedback loop that if you 
messed up, you were wrong. Like if you didn't do it correctly, you were wrong. You were bad. Um, and this is actually something that Brene Brown speaks a lot about where it's positive learning models versus negative reinforcement learning models, where you focus on trying to train on the positives while still evaluating the negatives, but not being explicit with like not punishing negatives, but more so just like bringing them into the context. And that to me, going back to learning as an idea feels like the stone nuts because you allow yourself to make mistakes and the best places of learning are when you make those mistakes. But if you punish yourself for making those mistakes, the probability of you learning from them really goes down because you're just going to get saltier and saltier and saltier, right? Like people use pain to not make the same mistake twice, but if you're already hurting you're probably not learning as much as you could be, generally speaking. Well, are you saying there shouldn't be any pain at all? I think there needs to be some pain. There's a, that's actually, a, that's a deep question. I think that pain is a good teacher. I think that it can be a good teacher. I think that if it's the only teacher, it becomes unsustainable. I think that there needs to be a general framework that is based around positive reinforcement and learning. And then if there are, pieces of pain within that that show up at a low frequency and you can and you have a healthy system for interacting with it then that is good because we live in a world where you cannot fight negative variants where you cannot fight the fact that things are going to feel hard so you do need to know how to learn and how to process these painful situations but if you are just learning by punishing yourself i think that that becomes unsustainable sure sure that makes sense to me i mean yeah it makes sense that the overall situation is not negative. This doesn't seem like a great situation. But that's and what a lot of people do for themselves. They they don't celebrate their wins and they kick themselves in the face when they lose, right? Well, and if that's yeah. like that's where the salty regs come from a lot of the time. Like it's just constant negative feedback. Yeah. It reminds me of some like toxic extreme teachers that like use like negativity in order to I mean there's like a, this idea like goes back to this whole idea of like toxic communication versus like positive but in fact there i actually came to this as i was trying to learn better ways of communicating but the toxic way of communicating is like to always apply pain first and then and remove the pain whereas the yeah. positive way is to always give positive sides of communication and then remove it if someone does something bad the the, the two are inverse um so yeah. I understand. I, yeah. GTS somewhere in the middle, right? Like there's, I think it, it, it takes both of those aspects from my perspective. I think that you, you should lead with positivity, but there are some contexts where there isn't anything positive. So learning how to communicate within a situation where things are just bad without doing it in a blaming or a shaming way is what becomes important, right? For example, sure. someone saying you fucked up versus like, hey, this is broken. Those are different. Right. Cause one of them is personalized and then the other one is generalized. So it's a team problem versus a, you made this mistake. We have to fix it now. Kind of a thing. Like one will make you feel defensive. The other one will make you feel collaborative, at least in my experience. Sure. Sure. Well, you're the one with more of the teamwork communication background between us. Speaking of which on the, on the concept of community, do you think that well, one thing that is going on is a lot of poker players are like becoming effectively like influencers and creating their own sub communities at the very least. Do you think if there's any kind of possibility that they can kind of collaborate, these people who are doing these sorts of things can collaborate in 
in a coordinated manner in order to change the poker poker environment. Like this seems like something that's in the the vicinity of the thought process of poker players, which is we do plus EV things that aren't necessarily that are innovative in order to make a better situation. That is the like the principle underlying principle of mm-hmm. poker. Like do you mm-hmm. see any potential in this kind of way? Because certainly certain changes could be made. I do. The the issue behind that is that a lot of the times the humans that are trying to get the most famous have a pretty intense cult of personality. And when you have two individuals with very strong moral compasses that don't align, which happens a lot in the poker world, like Twitter beef is is a meme at this point because you get these big brands just like attacking each other at a really high frequency, right? And And so I think that it does have a lot of potential for positive change. For example, Brad Booth and Andrew Nimi doing their meetup games. Everyone is so stoked in those experiences, right? Like people literally wanted to work with them as brand influencers because of how much positive, positive, like emotional impact they made on their, on their communities. People like Ethan Yao, Rampage do a phenomenal job of giving back to their community and being honest and vulnerable and not trying to show them stupid stuff. There are some people in the poker community who are not that healthy. And when you try to combine that with another personality who's not as healthy, it has a it has a probability of being a net negative. There's been a lot of big Twitter beefs, I think, that have hurt people that weren't necessary because there was just lack of empathy. And so I think in the long term, what you're saying with these influencers working together does have a lot of probability for positive impact. But we as a as a community and specifically as an ecosystem, I think need to learn and grow emotionally before trying to combine those network effects at a very large scale. Isn't poker about the long run in the first place? And is it also about growing and learning emotionally? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. But a lot of people that get very famous in poker stop doing that. They, well, stop, okay, so, they stop growing. I mean, I think it's just, well, you just ignore those people, right? Just if someone's going to be a weird toxic cult, then... <laughs> Yeah, but what if they're what what if they're loud? What if they have a big brand, right? What if what if they're using their brand to like sell at egregious markups and things like that? It just it it's all a very morally ambiguous thing because it relates to EV in the long run for a lot of poker players. Like what can they get out of it? And a lot of the influencers that I know, especially the one like I, I work with some poker influencers as students, and the only ones that I try to take on are people that I know are trying to in my, I, or at least in my head are trying to do good and like create positive impact. Um, and in that, in those contexts, getting those people to work together is really good. I'm, I'm worried that in the long run for the pursuit of EV, the poker community could trend away from it. But as long as there are dudes like Galfond out there who are trying their best I, with very big brands, I think that we have, we have high hopes where we have some oh. at least. Galfond, at least on paper, is not going to go to the dark side anytime soon. Yeah, unless Although he's trying to beat you and has appeal, then he's definitely on the dark side. <laughs> right, right. Yes. But uh, like to be honest, I don't think that morality is really that ambiguous. I think it it is in the sense that poker is ambiguous, but there's still a GTO. There's still like a GTO morality. Like it just takes into account. It just has a lot of subtle subtleties to it. I mean, we're kind of getting to that point. 
like more, there's more like positive influencers than negative ones. I think in poker, for example, and in fact, um, there was a a, a a YouTube video I found on game theory on like what's the optimal like social strategy, and it's like pretty crystal clear actually what's the optimal social strategy, and like it basically is to be nice overall nice is a bad word for it but to be cooperative is a better word for it i mean it makes sense because the more you cooperate the more you you both can flourish together rather than like spending time like fighting wars and fighting twitter beefs for example i completely yeah i agree in a like that's literally the it's not like the definition of nash equilibrium is like to have cooperation the or it's something similar the the issue with that is when you have people who are it's kind of it's it's like when you show up to a final table and everyone's playing ICM and one dude's saying like ICM's for poor people and just going wild. That person actually gains EV in that context. As long as they're not going too wild and like making like there are ways to gain EV in that context. And right. and so that's what ends up happening in real life a lot of the time. And so I'm as I said, I think that going back to this aspect of community, there there we are doing better as a poker community, especially compared to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I think that we've grown a lot. And I do think that there's a lot of growth that still needs to happen because we still idolize some people in this community for having a bunch of money and kind of, it's it's like, I don't know if you remember this, but in the two plus two area, like the ship at Hollaballas for the, the, I'm dating myself now, but it was literally like the pinnacle of winning in poker was like having a bunch of money, having a bunch of women, having a bunch of fancy cars. Like that is what the best people in poker aspire to be. And it took many decades to kind of transition out of that as the apex of what success looks like in the poker community. And so now I think that we are in a transition space to kind of redefining what success looks like because you have more evolved humans in the space like Galfon, for example, something that I try to really do with my clients and people that I work with is making success be based off of you personally. But there are still these uh, delusions of grandeur, like the best YouTube videos are the ones that have the largest dollar signs in them at a very high frequency, like the most money there. That's what people want to see when they go to poker on YouTube. Like if you put chips and large, like that's why Hustler does really well. They put on the biggest games with personalities that want to get attention and they do really well. And so there's, I think this- I'm I'm trying to be more attention than the fucking toxic motherfuckers. Yeah, but that, but, but like, I remember Brent Hanks saying this actually, and I, I thought it was really sharp. You need to have both for poker to flourish as a game. You need to have people that are going after the, the, the clicks and then people that are going after the, the good, the good high quality content as well. And learning how to balance the two is a struggle, in my opinion. I, I agree with that. And I don't think it's like exactly bad. I mean, that, by the way, and it has some good aspects to it. Like it, it basically, it's, that's how you go out into the mainstream. And, you know, I think the mainstream is more toxic than a lot of poker players. Like one thing to keep in yeah. mind is the yeah. poker players that succeed, you have to remove a lot of toxic traits in order to succeed at poker. Like you can't be a fucking shithead and win at poker. Like overall in terms of like managing your bankroll and things like that. I mean, you could be an asshole, I guess, but you could, but even that's yeah. like kind of yeah. hard to be because there's just like no assholes really in like high stakes poker. Like think about it. There's none. They're virtually not, not, I should say. Not, not none. There are some, but <laughs> it, yeah, there, I'm going to say there are some, but not none. Uh, and, and, and I agree at the highest levels of poker, 
generally you find phenomenal people. Like that's why I feel so fortunate to get to go battle at like Poker Go or at Triton or whatever. It's like the humans that I'm surrounded by are people that I actually want to hang out with. And a lot of the times the people that are grinding low stakes or mid stakes, you get a lot of more salty, miserable people. And then it becomes a feedback loop where because everyone else is doing it, you're doing it as well. Um, but this, I think, is actually a really powerful talking point to the community aspect. Because if you're grinding your live local game playing 2-5 and everyone's miserable and you don't have a community of people to not be miserable with, you'll sink into it. But if you have a community of people who are trying to be kind in those environments with you, I think that your probability of success really goes up over time. Yeah, I I definitely think so. I mean, it, it should, in theory, have quite a trickle-down effect. I mean, obviously, the energy you put in is the energy that tends to flourish. And yeah, I mean, this is a big reason why I'm trying to make it. I want to affect the culture of the poker world. I do think that there's, you know, I feel like there's sort of an elephant in the room that, I mean, it'd be up for you and up for other poker influencers to decide. To decide is like, can like even the influencers in poker that are positive do positive things for the like struggling class? I mean, this seems better overall. I want to explore this possibility anyway. And even within my community, we've launched like a free roll for people to win. It's actually uh, scheduled for later today, in fact, for people to play and win a little bit of money. And I think like initiatives like that will go a long way. I also want to mention, I personally want to create like sort of like an ad hoc job market in poker. Because I think that also has potential to help like struggling players win and learn from higher stakes players. Like something that already happens in the real world. There's a few different aspects of things that I'll be putting into place as I learn how to create a flourishing community to help. Well, my goal is to help many people succeed, not just like the pure crushers, but to also trust to them as well. For sure. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops over time. I really am. And I should ask you, what is your idea of success with your community? My definition of success for my community is to have it be self-sustaining, to have it be filled with people who are kind and empathetic, Mm -hmm. and that the community itself, by definition, is helping each individual towards their definition of success, towards their personal definition of success. It's like good humans spending time together, enjoying life, and then moving towards whatever their version of success is. It's like how I would define success for my overall community and for myself in my interactions with other people. Makes a lot of sense. I'll add that I'm adding a bit of a focus on health into it just because that's mm-hmm. a harder area in poker to solve and hard to solve just because I've struggled myself with trying to change my body and my workout routines and things like that. I think it's pretty fucking hard. I want to ask you, how are you going to make it, how are you making it self-sustaining? The way that I try to do that is by kind of creating what you were describing. Like this is not a, so first of all, my community is much smaller than yours. It's intending to be It's only the students that I work on with privately. And so within that self-sustaining community, I try to create situations where if somebody has a background in analytics, I want to teach them to be a poker analyst. 
if someone has a background in software engineering, I want to teach them how to do software engineering for poker. Not me being a software engineer, but showing them that their skill set can be used for tools within this within this ecosystem. If there are people who have been more successful, they have started to back people who are newer and coming up within my community as well, because they know that it's a plus EV investment when they're getting coached by me and they're catching them kind of early in their career. So they need financial backing. And so it's this it's a it's a system that hopefully perpetuates itself where people want to engage with it. Like that's I think the idea for a successful community is that you create enough incentive, whether it be knowledge, whether it be fitness, whether it be community and belonging where everyone wants to continue contributing. And if that is happening, that means that the community is successful. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I um I had the idea of making it financially self-sustaining seems tough confirm challenging confirm challenging it's a tough one i I think the only way to do that is to add job markets i know that in other communities pat flynn is an expert on communities and he he gives people the opportunity to teach other people and i think i'm going to implement that as uh it's not part of the, the first release but I'll let people do that. I believe in something like that as well. But uh, uh, we'll get to that. I just think an opportunity for commerce is a good idea in general. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Do you want to talk more about your PLO coaching? Or is there anything else that you feel is important to touch on? Honestly, I think we've done a really good job today. I think that there's a lot out there on my PLO coaching already. I, I take on a couple students per quarter nowadays for PLO. I'm not as as available as I once was because I'm doing other things like executive coaching work and things like that. But I'm I don't know. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have a coaching business be my career because educators in this world are not compensated effectively. Like I always wanted to be a teacher growing up, and in our society right now, teachers are spit on in terms of what they're compensated and how they're respected. And so I'm very grateful that. This is the lifestyle I've been able to build for myself. And I'm really hoping that I can continue to teach people not only whatever they want to learn, but how to teach and how to how to grow into creating financially viable ways to educate. Because right? it's 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 hard to do, but it's it's imperative to our society, in my opinion. I mean, I think there's a lot of issues in society, and I definitely think that people aren't really compensated appropriately to how they should be. And it's going to be really, it's a very hard thing to fix. But one of the added benefits of having community is you can create justice in a community. If you have like the authority, you just have to have yep. the right philosophy yep. and the right system effect checks and balances within like it, you know, something like that is possible. Like you can make sure like people do things in the right kind of way. And that should have a trickle down effect. Yeah, it's it's a it'll be a fun little microcosm for you to for you and your community to grow inside of, right? Little experiment to hopefully build grow build larger and impact positive change. Right. Uh, one thing I want to, I'm trying to figure out is I, mean, I have a few ideas is how to create systems where cheating is prevented against. I mean, that's going to be one of the aspects of my community is to protect people from being cheated and protect people from being you know, slow play, slow paid, slow paid isn't the worst, but not paid is pretty bad. Pretty Uh, bad. Yeah. Yeah. But But we have to, I think collectively as a community, we have to be more diligent with like 
basically not putting up with this shit. Like that's the reason why it exists. It's essentially tolerated. Um, yeah. And at least within my community, I'm going to like, we'll make a list of like, okay, this person didn't fucking slow paid. Okay. We're going to have to document that or whatever it is, but we'll see how that works. I, I am doing a bit of documentation to touch on the softer sides of, of poker skills, which I think are really important for success. I think they're really like underappreciated. Have you had much issues? Have you had much issues with these sorts of problems or have your students just, just kind of crushed and not really had life leaks of because due to soft skill issues? I myself have not really dealt with this because I also don't, I don't hold big numbers with people unless I really trust them. Like they're, I don't lend money almost ever, like pretty much ever actually do I lend money out unless it's literally to one of my best friends who I know it's not going to matter kind of a thing. Um, I've had one person slow pay me in my career and that was a decade ago and I got paid and you know, it, nothing, nothing came of it. I, I think that a lot of the times what ends up happening is people put themselves in situations where they feel as if they have to accept and accept either get slow played or don't get paid or you play, you got yourself into a soft game, but then maybe you didn't actually do enough research on the host and now the host is slow playing you. Like a lot of the times we, when we are getting slow paid or cheated, it is because we weren't being diligent enough. And that's not to say that people aren't getting scammed in real ways and that there are real victims. And I'm not like, if you are a victim of that shit, it sucks. And I'm not taking that away from you. I do also think that at a high frequency, it can be prevented as long as you're being diligent. Yeah, I, I do agree. I mean, I learned that kind of the hard way is that I needed to be more diligent with my, my own scams and stuff. My own, me getting scammed. I kind of made every mistake you can imagine, but I was too trusting, which uh, can be good if the environment is good. I realized yeah. it depends really on who you're trusting. I trusted the right people too. Yeah, that's a really big thing is to not, if you're trying to be really opportunistic opportunistic is not the word right word but in trying to pursue a lot of opportunity mm. it's uh if you don't do enough security or diligence you get screwed pretty hard but yeah maybe i should take some lessons from you i didn't realize you never had these issues i mean maybe you're really saying, yeah i was out of poker for a long time right and by the time i came back it it was a little bit easier i also started playing like when i did get scammed i was like 17, 18, 19 for small money, like a thousand bucks or something like that. Right. And so I got to learn those lessons really early, which is something that I don't take for granted. Growing up in the LA private cash game scene as like your first foray into live poker at 18 years old, you learn lessons pretty quickly or else you oh, don't yeah, learn yeah. them and, and get wrecked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm really lucky that I learned those early and that I haven't had to compound those mistakes later in my career. I've been scammed a total of zero times in the LA cash game scene by wow. the way and i went to a game that's certainly steam shady it definitely yeah i've been paid pretty fast and all of that but i mean i came after i learned lessons for all these sh other shady motherfuckers so <laughs> there's that anyway the goal for my community and presumably dylan's is we're gonna not get scammed we're gonna like say okay these guys are scamming they're on the list until proven otherwise and let's not deal with these people and for sure. yeah, uh, there's got to be some accountability going on or some kind of like protection measures put in place. 
Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? You know, I don't think so. I'm, as I said, I'm looking forward to your journey as an individual in trying to build out this community. I'm going to be rooting for you from the sidelines. And thank you for having me again. These are always very fun conversations. Thank you for your time, Dylan. You've proven yourself to be the wise man that your name suggests again. <laughs> thank with you. your lack of being scammed. I'm impressed. <laughs> thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. All right. Well, thank you for your time and best of luck with what you're doing in your coaching. And I'll see you next time. Thank you.